You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you open your Bibles uh, with me to Matthew 5, we'll be starting at verse 13 and reading through verse 16. Scripture says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, before I begin, uh, family worship, so kids are in. We do have a restless kids' room uh, just right across the hallway, so if that serves you, we pump it in. Uh, as I always say, uh, kids, you're not a distraction. It's good that you're here. Uh, we do have kids' totes as well in the hallway, along with two different uh, sermon notes. So kids, you can look at one, and then afterwards, I got the goods up here. So fill it out, come to me, and then uh, I'll look it over, and then uh, I got a sucker for you. So, All right. We are, this is our version of flying through the Sermon on the Mount. Like, you know, we did one beatitude at a time. But last week, you know what we did? Three verses. You know what we get to do this week? Four verses. It's just, it, we're just like going mock speed. Uh, before we get into the specific text, I'm just give it kind of a quick overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Like, how, how do we kind of look at the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end? So I'm going to kind of do that for you real quick. So we went through the first seven Beatitudes, and what do we, what do we get in Matthew, 3, uh, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 9, right? We got a massive heart check. That's what happened. God, the ultimate heart surgeon, takes you under the knife, and he like works on your heart. He is fixing the clogged artery, and he's, and he's fixing like the irregular heartbeat. That's what we saw as we went through the first seven Beatitudes. The last Beatitude and the two following verses were not as much a heart check, but like a reality check. If you're living the Christian life rightly, you will be persecuted. That was last week. Persecution is going to look different depending on where you live or what generation you are a part of. But Jesus says, you will be persecuted for following Christ. So don't, don't be fooled. The enemies of God are at work. But next, knowing that his disciples will be persecuted, he sends his disciples out into the world. He's like, I know they're going to hate on you, but guess what? I'm sending you out, this is today, to be what? Salt and light. Like, who thinks like that, right? What do we usually do when we run into persecution? We flee. Like, we, we protect ourselves. But Jesus is like, nah, I have you on mission. You're going to be salt and light in the midst of this broken and sinful world. 
So we'll think through that this morning. The next distinct section, in my opinion, is next week. Jesus needs to help us to understand the relationship of the law to himself. So those will be the next few verses for next week. Um, I touched on this last week, and we're going to see more of this today, but the spotlight will be directly on the law. The law of God is a big deal throughout the entirety of Scripture, and we need to know how to think well about it. The relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament law impacts the relationship that you, Christian, have with the law. And um, I got a feeling I'm going to cause some controversy as we get into that text, which, you know me, I'm good with that. I don't mind controversy. So that's next week. And then the most extensive and final section of the Sermon on the Mount spells out in detail the particulars or the ethics of the kingdom of God. Like Jesus is going one thing after another. He's going to be talking about lust. He's going to talk about adultery. He's going to be talking about bearing each other's burdens. He's going to talk about judging other people. Just one thing after another. And that's the biggest section in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's going to be coming out in the weeks ahead. One of the things that we're going to see with Jesus in that particular section, the largest section, is if you are burdened like by the moral law of the Old Testament, and then and you read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount appears to be like a boulder that's put right upon your back. Like Jesus kind of, you read it, and you're like, he like ups the ante about how we're supposed to live as Christians. But that's kind of Jesus' point, to live distinctly, for God means that you are, you are completely dependent upon his grace. The ethics of the Sermon on the Mount put you into a place of sweet dependence upon God. And so it's not a burden or a boulder on our back, but it's meant to drive us to Christ, knowing that we need his grace, we need his mercy in order to live distinctly in this world. So that is the quick overview of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we've been, and that's where we're going to be at today and where we'll be going to in the weeks ahead. So as it pertains to the day, I need God's help. So I'm going to briefly pray. I ask you to join me in that prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. Just as we sang this morning, we know that you are at work in your people you called us to be ambassadors so that other people may see our good works and give you glory. I pray that you would teach us well from your word, that by the power of the Holy Spirit that is indeed present this morning, you'd work on our hearts and you'd work on our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a question I have, I have not directly answered up to this point is who is Jesus preaching to? It's kind of an important question, right? Who's he preaching to? Of course, when Jesus preached this sermon, his audience was primarily Jewish, which is not a shock, right? But today, we read the words of Christ and realize Jesus is preaching to anyone who calls themselves a Christian. A non-Christian can read the words of Christ and say, hey, those are some pretty good ethics, right? A lot of people throughout history, not even Christians, but throughout history, have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and be like, man, if we could just live that way, we're going to do pretty well, right? But a non-Christian, someone who does not know the Lord, cannot live out the ethics because they don't have the grace of God. So, 
Jesus is preaching to those who have been redeemed by the grace of the gospel. And yes, other people are certainly listening in. But as we get into this idea of being salt and light, he's calling the Christian to be salt and light, not the unbeliever. And so by grace, Christians undergo ongoing transformation as we continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we call this sanctification. As we've seen thus far, the Christian life is the blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, meek, who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, and the peacemakers, right? All blessed. And the blessed life is the persecuted life. But the possibility of persecution should not cause Christians, like I said earlier, to recoil or retreat. No, Jesus sends his followers into the world. Why? Why does he send you into the world? So that you would make an impact on the world for God. As we saw last week, and as we're going to see today, Jesus calls you into the world to live distinctly for Christ. In other words, the decisions you make reflect what you believe and who you serve. Your everyday decisions, the little ones to the big ones. Reflect what you believe and who you serve. And last week, you remember the question I left with you last week? It was this. Do the people in your life know that you are a Christian? Like I really pressed it. I asked it at the beginning of the sermon and at the very end. Do the people in your life know that you are a Christian? It is a question that should cause you to pause and evaluate your faith in God and how your faith in God is reflected and seen by those around you. So I think Jesus is showing us through the Sermon on the Mount that it should be obvious to point out a Christian in a crowd. Allow me to illustrate with an example. I've had the great privilege of, of going through a season of my life, about 10 years, where I traveled the world. Uh, I loved it. I loved traveling. I loved inter- engaging and interacting with different cultures. Uh, what I notice is some countries are easier, easier for me to assimilate into than others, right? So for example, I went to Romania and Hungary, a great, it was a missions trip. Uh, If I didn't speak, people would have thought I was Romanian or Hungarian, right? Hungarian. Uh, The vibe was slightly different when I traveled to Uganda, Rwanda, and Zambia. Uh, While I could interact with many brothers and sisters in Christ in these countries, um, last checked, um, I'm a white dude, right? Can I confirm with my brother Joshua? I'd probably stick out in that crowd, right? I was called a Mzungu, right? It means white person. All the kids, like Mzungu. Okay? So I'm, 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 I'm a little more distinct when I was in Uganda, Rwanda, and Zambia. But I experienced another level of distinctiveness when I traveled to Afghanistan. From the clothes I was wearing, the color of my skin, and my religion, I have never been in a place where I felt so out of place. It only took a second for a person to observe my actions or hear my words to know that, you know what, I'm not Afghani. I don't belong, right? Here's my point. Christians need to live like they are in Afghanistan. Until Christ fully redeems, restores, and renews all things, Christians need to live like they are in Afghanistan. They need to live distinctly. People, you want people to know you don't belong here. You're a little different. Something's going on. Here's John 15, 9. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Therefore, the world hates you. We live, to use my example, in Afghanistan in light of two tensions. The world hates you because they first hate Christ. And two, God is using you as a part of his plan to bring about renewal and restoration. Therefore, we live distinctly and we are called to make an impact on the people and communities that surround us. Christians do not militate with weapons of war, right? I'm not bringing my nine to the battle. It's not what's going on here. We don't militate with weapons of war, but we militate with the love of God. And the love of God is defined by the law. Like, we want people to see we are different, even, even a little weird. Not in like a creepy weird, right? But just an obvious, like, huh, what's going on here? Romans 13 summarizes last week's sermon and sets the table for us this morning. We read this. Apostle Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Right? This is great. For the one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. That's very interesting. For the commandments, and he goes through a couple commandments here. You should not commit adultery, right? You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covet. All these commandments are part of the Ten Commandments. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Notice what Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying stop disobeying or pretending those laws don't exist anymore, the Ten Commandments. But no, if you want to rightly love, you fulfill those commandments. Loving others is defined by the commandments, by the moral law. When you obey and uphold the commandments, you're responding in love. Here's what pastor and theologian um, Sinclair Ferguson says about the law in connection to love. So faith in Christ produces love for Christ. Love for Christ produces a desire to be like Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. So being like Christ fulfills the law. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, and then he says, you are salt and light, Jesus is talking about how Christian ethics are observable by the people around you. Jesus talks about how his ethics can make inroads into this very broken, in this very dark world. So you, Christian, are salt and light. The early church father, uh, Origen, said, As salt preserves meat from decaying, so also do Christ's disciples have a preservative effect. Another old dead dude who I love to quote, John Christostom from the 5th century, said, Jesus' disciples are called the light of the world because they are illumined by the one who is the true and eternal light. These two different metaphors, salt and light, have two different applications, but they're actually aiming to achieve the same end goal. What is the goal of being salt and light? The last verse of our, passages, of our passage provides the answer of why Christ calls you to be salt and light. So that they may see your good works, right? When you think good works, think about how you behave, the decisions you make, think the moral law, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who are the they in Matthew, um, in this particular verse, Matthew 5.16? that they are the watching world. The chief goal of your good works is for the people to come to a place 
where they're giving glory to God. Isn't it interesting that what you do, the decisions you make day in and day out, impact how other people view God? It is crucial that you have a a biblically shaped life, a gospel shaped life. Before teasing out the significance of what it means to be salt and light, I want to explain how your good works and the choices you make fit into the Christian life. To do so, we need to avoid a few extremes that can exist within the church, right? Uh, the first extreme, and many of you are familiar with this, is legalism, right? Legalistic churches add to God's moral law. Now, let me be clear. Christians are dependent upon Christ and not the moral law. We're dependent upon Jesus. Christians are dependent upon the grace of God. But the moral law reveals, as we've already seen, what it means to love. Ironically, many churches hold to a tradition that that they say that God's moral law in the Old Testament and that's repeated in the New Testament no longer apply. Um, They end up being sometimes the most legalistic churches, which is very ironic to me. When God's moral law is removed, a vacuum is filled with a lot of man-made rules. But the truth is that any church can fall prey to legalism. So what is legalism? Uh, There's several ways to define legalism. I asked a few friends, hey, can you give me a definition of legalism? A few different answers, depending on your experience. But here are a couple. Legalism within the church is when people are expected to follow rules not stated in Scripture. Like, we all get, do not murder, right? But what about all women should wear culottes? All of you from the funding movement, you know what I'm talking about. Right? I don't see that in Scripture. Right? All women, ladies, I only see a few dresses that actually reach the floor. I understand the impulse to promote modesty, 1 Corinthians 6, right? Absolutely, 100%. But let's not be careful to be overly rigid about how modesty is achieved. Here's another example. Let's say the church is having a potluck. There should never be an unspoken pressure for everyone to participate, right? Let's say the church, we're having that potluck and it's announced and say, everyone try to bring someone, right? Nobody should be giving the, that, you know, Johnny or Sally the side eye because they didn't bring something. Now, I hope and, and I think it's good that everyone participate in church functions I think it's biblical that all members serve in the local church, but the motive is to love God and love others. The motive should not be unspoken pressure from the community. That's a legalistic culture. Honestly, a watching world sees that kind of garbage, and they they don't want it. They don't want it. That is not being salt and light. I've also seen blatant hypocrisy in the church. Church leaders place unfair and unmanageable expectations on people while unwilling to set the example, right? Or they see that solving a problem is more important than the person. What is attractive to a watching world? When the decisions we make 
and the acts of service we do flow out of and is motivated by what? A love for God and a love for others. Out of a Christian's affection for God and others will come a multitude of un, untold choices that are faithful to God. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, we will hear Jesus challenge us to what? What? Love our enemies, right? Jesus will challenge us to resist retaliation, but instead, the person that you, you feel this impulse to retaliate against, no, Jesus says, no, nah, you know what you need to do? You need to give them your stuff. And Jesus is going to tell us to give to the needy. All of this is done, not for your glory, but for whose glory? For the glory of God, so that others may see your good works and give glory to God. So ongoing legalism creates rules that do not exist or should not exist, and it creates a culture where your righteousness, in a theological sense, is dependent upon what you do or don't do and not dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. There's another extreme that I, I want to contend with this morning. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? Right? Heard that before. Uh, some people say St. Francis of Assisi coined it. There's some debate about that, right? Who knows? But many of us have heard it. I, I know pe many people who shoot down the phrase and say, that's unbiblical, right? Well, here's the deal. Words are absolutely necessary to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't get through the Pauline epistles and not see, whoa, we are called to preach and proclaim, right? I mean, we have a Bible that is word-based. Something's being said here. So that is absolutely 100% true. Well, here is the deal. Your good deeds are also a reflection of what you are proclaiming. What does it say in Ephesians 2.10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? What were you created for? Good works. And these good works, we read in Ephesians 2.10, they were prepared for you beforehand that we should walk in them. As we read several verses earlier in this same passage from Ephesians, you were not saved by your works. Paul makes that clear. You were saved by, the, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Like the reformation of the 16th century was a necessary and massive correction to a works-based salvation. That is heresy, whether you find it in a Baptist church or a Catholic church. Ponder that for a moment. They're, they're doing the same thing. Just looks a little different sometimes. Works-based salvation. No, it is the grace of God that saved you. And it's the grace of God that continues to train and teach you. That's Titus 2. God's grace is at work in your life so that others may see Christ in you. So your good works matter. Therefore, it is the grace of God that pushes you out to be salt and light. You need to be salt and light in this broken world. So let's look at these thick metaphors for the Christian life. It is commonly known that salt has historically been used to preserve food and not seasoning, right? We all do the seasoning thing, right? I love salt. Cooked up a pork chop last night. Didn't put anything else on it. I'm like, it's got to have a little taste in there. So what do you do? Grab the salt. That's what we use salt for. 
But with the development of, of refrigerators and freezers, salt has become less needed for the preservative effect. So in the first century, uh, the, the term salt, what would have come to mind for, for his listeners was like, no, we use salt to preserve food. What does it mean for Christians to be salt of the earth? Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the relationship of being salt. He says this, Ye are salt of the earth. You are salt of the earth. What does this imply? It clearly implies rottenness in the earth. It implies a tendency to pollution and to becoming foul and offensive. That is what the Bible has to say about this world. It is fallen, sinful, and bad. Its tendency is to evil and to wars. It is like meat, which has a tendency to putrefy and become polluted. It is like something which can only be kept wholesome by means of a preservative or antiseptic. Only take you two minutes to know that Martin Lloyd-Jones is correct. The world is sinful and broken. The nations of the earth are constantly at war with each other. Like, think about the time that you've been on this earth. How many wars have you experienced? The earth and the things of this earth are like a raw steak sitting in the summer sun. It rots away and it's just becoming putrefied. What does it need? It needs salt. It needs salt for preservation. So you are the salt of the earth as you follow the ways of Christ, right? By virtue of Christ in you and you in Christ, Ephesians 1, you can preserve good and resist what is evil. I was not um, raised in a Christian home, as many of you know. But after the Lord redeemed me in my early 20s, one of the first things that changed is I stopped using um, the Lord's name in vain. Like, I grew up in a family and swearing like sailors and not a great culture or context. It might seem silly, but this was actually a massive change. And this is one of the things that did happen instantly for me. Well, it's interesting that when I now gather with my brothers and my father, I've noticed a marked difference in their language. Like, don't get me wrong, it's still not great, but my presence tempers their sin. I never made an announcement. I never asked them to change. They saw the change in me, and they knew that I followed Christ. And so they decided to, okay, we'll change for him. I think we would all say that's a good thing to not use the Lord's name in vain, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. I just tried to be Christian. Now, for a moment, consider your workplace, your neighborhood, or your school. Now, assume you are a Christian who is taking to heart all the Beatitudes. You know from Matthew 5, 10 to 12, that you could be persecuted for your faith but you also know your, your faith in Christ can allure people. So st- stick with me. Day after day, you strive to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Your coworkers, neighbors, or classmates, they're watching. They see that you are different from others. You're not caustic, but you're kind. You're not impatient, but you're gracious. 
right? Fruits of the Spirit at work in your life. Yes, you are not perfect, right? You are not perfect, but you know that about yourself, which is another distinguishing mark of being a Christian. You know that you're not perfect, and you rely and are dependent upon the grace of God. Then one day, your friend that you've been hanging out with, or you've been in a relationship with for five years at work, comes into you in despair. Why do they come to you? They need help. And they come to you because they see that you're just a little different. You're just a little weird. That you're kind. They see Christ in you, whether they realize it or not. That's what it looks like to be salt of the earth. And there's something about your saltiness that attracts people. Because you are the salt of the earth, you find yourself in a gospel moment with a person who desperately needs Jesus. I remember after seminary, um, I didn't get into a pastoral position right away. I had several years of working in the, in the business world. And, and I worked downtown Minneapolis warehouse district. And um, most people there were not Christians, but they knew I was. And by virtue of that and just trying to, in my depravity, to walk out the Christian life, I did a lot of counseling, <laughs> a lot of counseling. Because they knew it just, the guy's a little different. God can use your saltiness to activate change in others. And change can happen on a personal level. But we also have seen how change can happen on a, on a societal level, right? Here's a, a great example of a man who was salt of the earth. And he made a massive change in society. For 20 years... William Wilberforce fought for the abolition of slavery in England. Heard of the name? If you don't know the name, I encourage you to look him up. It's an amazing story. Wilberforce was a Christian. He loved the Lord, and he hated biblical injustice. He knew that every human being was created in God's image and deserved to be treated with dignity. For 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, not one day, not 20 days, 20 years, Wilberforce acted as salt among his colleagues, right? Political colleagues. For 20 years, he worked to eradicate the grave sin of slavery. Slowly but steady, his effects brought change. In 1807, the Slave Trade Act was passed, which basically outlawed slavery in England. And then in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed, which outlawed slavery in most of the British Empire. You need to understand something here. Historically speaking, slavery has been a global problem. We tend to isolate it to the United States. It's actually been, if you want to talk about pandemics, historically speaking, slavery's been that. Yet Wilberforce stood up for what is, what is right. He was salt of the earth. Christians are salt of the earth that preserves over time. Christians are to be unlike the world, even if that means you hold a position that is not popular in the prevailing culture. Like when, when Wilberforce wanted to enact this, it was not popular to change what was going on. Yet he stood for what is true and what is biblical. 
and he just kept at it. He just kept at it. A Christian is different, as salt is different from the meat that is that it's rubbed on, right? Think of it this way. God commissions you, Christian, to be his ambassador of the gospel here on earth. So if you desire to be God's ambassador on earth, you must be salty. It's funny. We use that word in a different way at our house. Don't be salty. That's not what we're talking about, right? It's a positive way to think about salty. Now, if I may suggest, one of the problems with, the modern, with modern American Christianity is that it's losing its ability to preserve the church looks too much like the culture. And when lines are blurred, what happens? Compromises are made. I mean, here's just an excellent example of people that are no longer salty. They used to be, but they're not that anymore. Over the course of 150 years-ish, mainline denominations, some, not all, but many, mainline denominations and local churches have abandoned uh, the Bible clearly on several issues, right? They've abandoned what the Bible says on humanity and sexuality, right? We have pastors who are preaching from pulpits, but they don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There are prominent religious figures who say they're a Christian, but they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've abandoned Scripture. And they've lost their ability to be salty. Because what are you standing on at that point? What kind of change are you trying to affect? Listen, I'm not trying to throw stones at denominations, local churches, or specific people. In, at this moment, I'm trying, um, not trying to be an agitator. However, when you begin to abandon what God clearly states in Holy Scripture, you are no longer salty. Instead of preserving the meat, the meat becomes rotten. Jesus tells us, there will be trouble for you in this world because you stand upon God's word. But you are to be salt of the earth, even when there is trouble, especially when there is trouble. Next, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, right? Salt, now light. Jesus uses two pictures to fill out this, this particular point. You, Christian, are what, a city on a hill? And then you are a lamp. Now, why does Jesus use the metaphor of light? First, light has a positive and a negative effect. Negatively, light exposes sin that lives in the darkness. There is a, a litany of passages that I could pull from, but this one captures the negative effect of darkness. Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When I was in high school, my best friend's father would say, if you can't get it done before midnight, you shouldn't do it at all. <laughs> Now, you can amend the time, but the point is simple. There's something about the darkness that allows for sin to cultivate. Without light, this world is hopeless and empty. Without light, Satan runs roughshod over souls. In the darkness, sin metastasizes like cancer. And the cure is for light to break in. So positively... Light exposes what is being done in darkness. You might not have the same sensibilities as me when it comes to um, Lord of the Rings, which is fine. But one of the reasons why I appreciate the books and the movies is the contrast between light and darkness. 
the contrast between light and darkness, I would argue, and those who are much more um, proficient in Lord of the Rings will challenge this, I'm sure. But it seems to me that light and darkness is one of the main things that carries the plot along throughout the entire story. You see contrast between Saruman and Gandalf, darkness and light. You see contrast between Mordor and the Shire. Now, if you're into these movies, next time you watch them, note the obvious and subtle contrasts that are woven in throughout these books and movies. The contrasts are just so clear. But in the end, the light overcomes the darkness. But the journey is not without pain. It's not without trouble. Even when victory seemed to be doubted, many of the characters of light, they still had hope. So J.R.R. Tolkien, a Catholic and friend of C.S. Lewis, he understood the real world. And he effectively created a fantasy world to portray the battle between darkness and light. He effectively shows in the end that the light will triumph over the darkness. Now back to Jesus. What does he say about himself in John 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. And now you, Christian, are the light. You are called to expose the sin that lives in darkness. Now, you're not called to be the morality police. We don't need that. i got to quickly revert us back to, to legalism right quick, right? No, that's not how this goes. You are called to display the grace and mercy of God to other people. That is what attracts I'll return to this point in a moment because your call to expose darkness is actually dripping with application. First, you are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. we got that to contend with. I think Jesus suggests that the Christian faith is not about retreating from the culture and the world, right? We're not retreating. The Christian faith and the church are not called to like get a bunker and like get into the bunker and we only come out for, you know, for food or whatever. We're not to be a country club where the only people who say the right things, wear the proper clothes, and know the secret handshake are allowed in. Nope. We want to intentionally show ourselves to the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Everyone sees that city on the hill. We want to be seen because we want people to know the saving power of the gospel. We want people to know Christ Yes, like I said, we are imperfect. You are not perfect. Headline news, you are not perfect. Sean Powers is not perfect. Every church family has a crazy uncle or aunt, right? Like you might be that person. I don't know. I'm saying every, every family has that. But we belong to Christ. And we follow the Lord. And we want to be light, the light of Christ. We want that light to shine. We want it to be seen. So you are to be seen, and you are to shine. We take a look, closer look at verse 15. In order people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The question implied by Jesus is, do you hide the light of the gospel in deed and in word underneath a basket? It's back to the, the question I've been asking. Do other people know that you're a Christian? Do the people in your life know about your faith in Christ? 
If some people in your life do not know about your faith in Christ, what steps will you take to be salt and light? If you take the Beatitudes to heart, then you will engage a broken world in a way that honors God and is attractive to many. Your life and your good works will be seen by others. Like here at Redemption Hill Church, salt and light will take on many forms, right? There's many ways to achieve being salt and light in this world. You can be salt and light by getting involved with ministries that we support, like Together for Good, pre-foster care ministry that we love, Covenant Mercies, another ministry we, we love, right? That's one way to be salt and light, support those ministries. You can be salt and light in supporting a crisis pregnancy center like Agape in Des Moines. You can be salt and light by locking arms with organizations that fight modern-day um, slavery, human trafficking, right? That's another way to be salt and light. God calls you, Christian, to be salt and light. The challenge from Christ this morning is to take his words to heart, even if that means getting out of your comfort zone. We all have our comfort zone. but Sometimes it takes getting out of your comfort zone to be salt and light. Let me end with this. Maybe it's like, I don't know how I'd, how I'd be salt and light in a ministry like Together for Good or Covenant Mercies or Agape. How about this? Begin in your home. Begin in your workplace. Like you got that coffee shop that you always go to. Right? Be salt and light there. Every single day. Every single day. Every, every morning you wake up, you begin to take um, those first morning breaths, right? Consciously. And you go about your day. You can be salt and light. Parents, be salt and light with your kids. Kids, you can be salt and light with your parents and your siblings. Opportunities are endless. I can do this all day, but I think you get the point. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. And as you're salt and light, other people will see your good works and others will glorify God. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.